TED Audio Collective. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hey everyone, it's Adam Grant. Welcome back to Rethinking, my podcast on the science of what makes us tick. I'm an organizational psychologist, and I'm taking you inside the minds of fascinating people to explore new thoughts and new ways of thinking. Today, my guest is Saul Perlmutter. He's the Nobel Prize-winning astrophysicist, best known for his discovery that the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate. Saul serves at the White House on the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, he teaches classes at Berkeley on physics and music, because he plays the violin, and on sense, sensibility, and science. I can't imagine a better role model for all of us to sharpen our creative and critical thinking skills. Well, I am thrilled to have you here, especially as uh, a once-upon-a-time wannabe physicist. What was it that hooked you in physics of all the things you could have studied? I think I'm just one of the kids who uh, just always wanted to know how the world worked. In fact, if anything, I think I'm more curious about why everybody didn't, didn't get hooked. I think as a child, I thought, well, here we are on this earth and it's our toy and, and nobody gave us the owner's manual. And doesn't everybody need to know the owner's manual? And I guess as you get older, you start to realize that, well, somehow people all manage. Uh, we all work day to day without the owner's manual. But in my mind, I think still there's that sense that everybody should want to know this stuff. That's so fascinating. I think that as far as I can remember, like I've been obeying the laws of gravity. Nobody gave me the manual. I didn't need to know them. And yet I've been following them very dutifully. So I, 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 think, I think you're doing a great job. I, I mean, just watching you, it's you staying in your seat. <laughs> <laughs> Lifetime of practice. What can I tell you? Oh, well done. Uh, so thank you, Saul. So of all the things that you could have explored. How did you decide what about the world you wanted to understand? I think I always was interested in the in sort of the basics that you needed to know to understand the world. So 
you know, all the different languages of the different specialties interested me because I thought that they must be the ways in which you can understand things. I was always curious about how the mind works. One of the fields I could still imagine going into is cognitive science type questions as, as we would call them now. But then all the basics of what are the fundamentals of, of the physical world that we live in struck me as they must be underneath everything else. And so, you know, now I come to think of it as, you know, what are the forces and what are the smallest particles? And But I think at the time I was more interested in just what would be the most fundamental question you could ask from which you could learn everything else. Love it. When did you start to wonder about the scale of the universe? Well, when I was in graduate school, I remember a period in which I was looking around for what would be a good, meaty project to work on for my PhD. And you, know, you could do research of all sorts. In fact, I'd chosen Berkeley because it had such a wide variety of experimental topics that people were working on. But I found myself troubled because I really wanted an experimental topic that would feel really deep and almost foundational and, and philosophical. And you could do it perhaps by doing elementary particle physics, which seemed like it would be getting at some of these questions. But as a graduate student, I was looking for something where you would feel a little bit more directly, personally involved. And uh, particle physics had become already a pretty big team activity. And I figured that as a grad student, I wouldn't necessarily get to shape the experiments as much. And then I remember realizing that you could uh, possibly use um, astrophysics as a way in because you could see some really deep fundamental things there. And even so, I was still hunting around for a good project. And finally, I came across this opportunity to measure the history of expansion of the universe and find out, for example, how fast the universe was expanding. That could tell you something about the age of the universe. And then it was even better than that. It turned out that you could actually use the measurement of the history of the expansion of the universe to find out whether the universe would last forever and uh, or whether it would somehow come to an end, and also whether it was infinite or whether there was only a finite amount of real estate out there. And those struck me as the kind of deep philosophical questions I'd always wanted to do. So I think we have a vested interest as human beings in the answers to all those questions. You are probably best known for your discovery that the universe is expanding at an increasing rate. You're probably going to correct my description of that, but I first came across it when I was, uh, it was, I guess, the first, first semester of my freshman year of college. I signed up for two courses that I was, I was thinking about shaping my major through. One was psychology. The other was astrophysics. And just, I remember- Just like me, well, clearly you made a better choice and had much more to contribute to <laughs> physics than I did. But I remember just being horrified and almost existentially paralyzed by the idea that the universe was not only expanding, but the rate of expansion seemed to be accelerating. So th I think that was your fault. Can you can you first explain this discovery to me and then make me feel better about it? Well, well I should apologize both to you and to my younger sister. Because for her, even just when I start talking about the infinite universe at all, before we even start talking about whether it's expanding and whether the expansion is accelerating, she says it just gives her the willies. And I find myself thinking, it's funny, why does it not do that for me? For me, I think I've always felt like we're somehow in this very interesting place as humans because we, we are in a size where we get to look out at things that are much, much bigger than us and also look down at things that are much, much tinier than us going down to the elementary particles. And so we're, at, we're sort of nicely contained in the middle. And then similarly, um, we we're right in the middle of a period in which you know the universe was expanding first very dramatically, and then it started slowing down, and then it started speeding up again. But we're 
kind of in, in a middle point where things aren't too far apart and things aren't too close together. And so we can actually look at things and it almost feels like we're in a nice cozy center in our universe where you know we, we get to look at everything. It, at, at, and if we had been around much earlier, it would have been hard to do anything because everything would have been too dense. And if we're around much later, it would be hard to do anything because you couldn't see any other galaxies. We would we'd just be all alone by ourselves. We'd never be able to figure this out. We're in a really nice spot. Wow. So optimal distance for a physicist to do research. Exactly. The right size, we're the right t- time in history. It's almost perfect. Now, of course, maybe, maybe we'll, they'll turn out that the world is very different than we thought. And we'll realize that, oh, we were getting a very funny view from where we are right now. But at the moment, it, it, in, our, in our picture, it seems like we're very, very nicely oriented. Well, that's part of what I want to talk about. Before we go there, though, I would love to hear the story of, of how you made this monumental discovery. What were you doing? What did you see? How did you document something that, as far as I understand, that people in your field have been trying to study for decades, if not centuries? Well, it was, there was a really lucky moment, and this is in the, the mid to late 80s, in fact, where people had, for a long, long time, ever since Hubble and other colleagues saw that the universe was expanding, there had always been the thought that, well, that expansion can't go on for everything because all the stuff in the universe, um, everything gravitationally attracts everything else. So you would imagine that the expansion would be slowing down. And depending on the density of the universe, it would slow down you know, more or less. And you could imagine that um, if there's enough stuff in the universe, it might even slow to a halt and someday um, turn around and collapse to a big crunch. And so that would be an end of, of the universe. And people had thought that perhaps you might be able to make that measurement by finding some distant object where you knew how bright it really was and using it as a distance marker across the universe because you would see how bright it appeared to you. And it didn't work out that well when people tried doing this with galaxies because it turns out galaxies um, have evolved over time and they changed their brightness. And then people started thinking that you could use these exploding stars, supernova. And it was only in the uh, late 80s when I was looking into this that we started to realize that there was a certain subclass of supernova called type 1a supernova which really were pretty good standard candles. They were almost always the same brightness. And you could use them to mark out across the distances in the universe. And we had just done a robotic supernova search project where we had figured out how to use all these modern detectors. At that point, the camera detectors that you have in, in everybody's cell phone today was a really new thing. And we just started to use them to be able to image things directly into your computer and have the computers hunt for the supernova in these fields full of galaxies. All the pieces were in place at the, just at the right moment. And so that was when we started this project to look for very, very distant exploding stars, supernova, and use them to map out the history of the expansion of the universe with all these digital you know, computer programs to find these distant supernova. We thought that if we were really lucky, oh, we needed about 30 of these supernova um, to get a, enough precision to measure whether or not it was slowing enough to come to a halt or whether um, it was not slowing quite that much and it would then always slow, but keep expanding forever. And that seemed like it was a really great project because you could find out if the world was coming to the end in some billions of years, of course. If you could make that measurement, you could also tell whether the universe was infinite or not in space. Because if there's enough stuff in the universe, it, it has this weird property in Einstein's theory of general relativity of bending space. And so you can actually bend space in on itself if there was enough to slow the universe to a halt and have it collapse, that would also be enough to make it bend in on itself so there is only a finite amount of real estate out there. If you traveled in any direction as far as you wanted, you'd end up back somewhere where you were before. And I thought those were great questions. I couldn't imagine a better project. So that's how we got into the whole thing. Wow. 
And what did you see that led you to conclude that the universe was accelerating in its, in its expansion? We, we thought it was going to take us three years to find 30. At the end of three years, we had not yet found one. At the end of five years, we found our first of the very, very distant supernova. There, you know, people had seen nearby supernova before, but never the ones that we needed to make the, these very distant measurements. It wasn't until nine years in that we actually had a sample of supernova big enough to actually measure this huge question, which, by the way, turned out to be 42 supernova. And so those people who like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy always enjoy the fact that we were answering this deep question with 42 supernova. Life, the universe, and everything. Exactly. Right exactly. there. And so with 42 supernova, we, we started actually putting the points on the plot. And you could plot the history of the expansion to see how it was slowing down. And weirdly, the points all missed the lines that we were expecting to differentiate between all the ones that slowed, where the universe slowed down. And we thought, well, all right, I'm sure there's some computer bug somewhere in the software. Or else um, it'll turn out that we need an extra control in our analysis of the dust that could be absorbing the light from the supernova or, or anything could be wrong. Almost all you do as a scientist is try and figure out what's wrong with your measurements. Your goal is uh, to hunt through everything that could be wrong before anybody else figures out what's wrong with your measurement. That's basically what 95% of the life of a scientist is, as far as I, I can tell. But in this case, it didn't go away. We kept having these points appearing in the part of the graph where they, we didn't think they would be. And that happened to be the part of the graph where if the universe was slowing down earlier, but for the last half of its life, it's been speeding up, that's where these points would be. After about seven, eight, nine months of hunting for all the things that could be wrong with the experiment and all the things that could be wrong with the computer program and doing all the sanity checks that we could possibly do, we started concluding, you know, I think this is actually the answer. And so we started just beginning to give some talks about this and, and realized you know, and obviously we have to be very, you know, careful showing everything we had checked because otherwise, why would anybody believe this stuff? Wow. I, I have so many questions about this. I think the first one is people tend to think about science as this very cold, rational, calculative process. And yet I hear all this emotion in your voice when you talk about it. What was the emotional arc of that experience from the first inkling of, of this hypothesis and saying, wait a minute, like, everything we think is true might be wrong to ultimately, like, we have just discovered that, in fact, most of the field is wrong. Well, well, I, maybe I should even go further back because the, I, it feels to me the whole scientific process is a, a amazing interplay of emotions and this cold rationality that you also are using at the same time. So at the very beginning, you know, as I was saying, the project wouldn't start unless you were really excited about the project. And that's what you know, got, got me into it, the fact that you could measure something that seemed amazing. In fact, it seems so much fun. I couldn't imagine why isn't everybody doing this? The idea that you could find out if the universe was going to last forever and if it was infinite or not. And all you had to do was go out and measure the brightness of some of these exploding stars. It seemed like the whole field, everybody would be doing that. And I was, I was you know, surprised that, that we couldn't you know, convince people to let us use the telescopes at first you know, for, for the purpose. So there's that emotional aspect. Then there's all of the um, frustrations that you have to work your way through. The fact that for the first Five years, we have not yet found a, a single one of the supernova that we were going to use is a really good example of, of the kind of thing that emotionally you have to be completely you know, sure that you're making progress, that you can tell that you're actually getting closer and closer. And I think that one of the real tricks of science is the ability to stick with something long enough to get an answer because most things take way longer than anything that most humans are willing to do just in the day-to-day -day life. So you need all this this extra you know, ability to fool yourself into thinking that you're, you're getting somewhere. One of the very first big public presentation I gave was a 
department colloquium in the physics department at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and distinguished um, theoretical cosmology faculty there, Joel Primack, stood up afterwards and he turned to the audience and he said, he just wants to, to make sure that physicists in the audience really understand what a bizarre result this is and how it really changes the picture of, of cosmology and it could even you know, change our picture of some of the underlying physics of the world. And of course, that was the moment in which I finally had that sense of, wow, that's right. Yeah, I, I knew that was the case, but, but so the fun of it came to me at that moment when somebody else reacted to the whole thing. It's a very social activity. And all the work that you're doing that I was describing is done in groups, a small team of people, and we're all you know, trying to you know, help each other and, and make the whole thing work. And then it's a team activity because you need other people to listen to it and to help you decide, is this right? And is it exciting? Well, the result that you ultimately produced, I think, is partially responsible for me choosing to steer away from astrophysics. Because <laughs> I remember just being mystified by a puzzle that I think you can finally help me solve two decades later, which is, on the one hand, I thought the universe was everything. On the other hand, it's supposed to be expanding. So what What's is going it expanding on? into? Where is it going? That's almost the starting point of any time I talk to anybody about cosmology, because if somebody says to you, oh, and it's expanding, that's ridiculous, right? Because it's already infinite. Well, I think that one of the first things that everybody gets wrong is they start trying to picture a wall and that that wall is moving out. And of course, that can't be right if it's an infinite universe. Guilty as charged. <laughs> I always have to say, okay, when we say the universe is expanding, first, just picture a universe that we could live in today. So picture something that goes that's infinite, as far as you want in every direction. And every now and then, there's a galaxy in that infinite universe. And how often you hit these galaxies is just a matter of what the average distance is between these galaxies if you were traveling around. And that is, sets the scale of the universe. So when we say the universe is expanding, all we mean is that we've puffed extra space between all of those points, between all those galaxies. And now you have to travel further to reach galaxies. All the expansion is happening between every object. I wish somebody had told me that. I might have I might have landed on a different career path, although I <laughs> I really love the one that I chose. I wouldn't want to undo it, but so, so maybe, maybe it's just as well. <laughs> I feel like it worked out okay for okay, all of okay, us. Good, good. One of the things that I'm very excited to talk about is the question of teaching people to think more like scientists. And obviously that's an enterprise that you're passionate about. You have a, a course on sense and sensibility and science that you teach at Berkeley. I've been working on some similar issues in, in writing Think Again and trying to teach people to, to operate more according to the principles of science. And what, I guess the, the place I want to start is, when do you consider something settled science? If, if I were to ask you, for example, like, what's the probability that Pluto is in fact a planet or that the Earth is not round? Well, the choice about Pluto being a planet or not, of course, um, is one that's much less likely to be settled because that's almost the definitional one and we can keep playing with the definitions forever. I would say that what's really interesting to me about the way scientists uh, have approached the world is that they really, really have to become comfortable with the idea that almost everything we know, we know with some degree of probabilistic credibility of different levels, that it goes all the way from things that we just barely are sure about and that we think we see some indication of all the way to something that you would bet your life on and you would bet everybody's lives on. We bet our lives every time we get on an airplane, right? We're really pretty sure we know enough about this combination of gravity and aerodynamics and all, all these different aspects that we can bet our life that we can get on a multi-ton plane and the whole thing will fly. Um, however, 
almost every topic we talk about, um, even gravity and electricity and magnetism, there are new things that we can learn. And that's, I think, one of the real fun aspects of science, but it's also where a lot of the flexibility of thinking comes from. The ability to learn something new, even about something that you thought you really understood, and the ability to change your mind about something. Well, there have been a couple of papers that have come out recently suggesting that the the blanket trust science or believe scientists recommendation does not help people. It seems to engender more resistance in people who are already cynical and also lead to unquestioning acceptance of pseudoscience among people who are gullible. Right. That, that what we want to do instead is we actually want to teach them how science works. And I can't think of a better person to do that than you. So if you encountered a flat earther, what would you say? Well, first of all, I say there's some things that people want to believe just because it makes them more comfortable in the world. And that my job isn't to take away people's comfort in the world. It's only when you want to figure something out where you really need it to work and whether you need to be able to, to make it work with other people as well. We, we tend to um, like to see results that confirm things we already think we believe. And it's really hard to start to train yourself to look for results that might have a chance of proving something's wrong that you believe. And so just the trick of the brain, being able to hunt for ways in which you're getting it wrong is already a huge step forward and being open to the possibility that something you think you're pretty sure about is wrong. And then looking for evidence for that, that you're wrong, is already a big trick of, 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 of the trade. And so I think that, that would be obviously highly relevant for somebody in the flat earth camp. Well, this is the perfect opening for a flat earther, right? To say, here you are looking for all this evidence that confirms your silly round earth theory. Right. But like, I, I've gathered all this contrary evidence and like, you're not open to disproving your own theory. And, and that's completely fair game, right? What you find, is, of course, for any specific area that gets to be complex, and probably the flat earth one is a little bit too easy in a certain sense, but almost any other topic where there's something that's more sophisticated involved in it you'll quickly run into, there's just lots of what looked like disparate evidence and that it's hard to tell um, what to trust and, and what not to trust. What I've often been doing in a course like ours is trying to show how you look for a, a group of people who appear together to be trying to figure out whether they're wrong and together are, are hunting for you know, evidence that makes a current rounded story that fits with everything else we know. Any single piece of evidence isn't left by itself. It weaves into this raft of sticks that we, we weave together. And, and that's what science is. I think a flat earth right now is a pretty bad example of a stick that would have a very hard time fitting in with everything else we know. Yeah, this this speaks to something that that really drives me crazy when the media covers science, when there are conflicting results to say, well, some studies say X, but other studies say reverse X. Right. No, we don't. We shouldn't just be talking about both sides equally. You weigh the more rigorous evidence more heavily. <laughs> you take the sticks that don't fit in, and you ask, well, what's incomplete about the theory? Not are all the theories wrong, or is science completely untrustworthy altogether? Now, absolutely. And I must say that I, I feel a little bit disappointed that the scientists uh, of the last 10, 15 years weren't a little bit more um, comfortable explaining some of this while they were presenting some of these important uh, points about the world that we live in right now. I think they were, were scared and they were convinced by all those television producers that always come to me when they're making a new documentary. And they say, this is television. Everything has to be as absolutely simple as possible. And I say, 
but my experience of talking to people is that they actually enjoy a little bit more detail, a little more texture. And the same thing I think was told to people when they were trying to discuss climate change. They said, you can't explain to them that there's parts of the story that we don't understand. I think in some ways, I th the same mistake was made in the way that the, the, the various different uh, recommendations for the pandemic were handled, <sighs> that they often were presented as if, you know, here is the answer, don't ask any questions, as opposed to here's our current answer, we're playing a football game against the virus. And, you know, don't be disappointed if we come back to you with a different play any more than you'd be disappointed um, if, if your football coach, I'm told you we're actually doing a different play this next down. That's the way it works. This is a great example of what in Philly we like to describe as trusting the process, right? Yeah. Which as a Philly native, I'm sure you've, you've watched the Sixers over the, the past decade or so. And I, I keep wanting to say, look, this is not about trusting scientists. It's about trusting the scientific method, which is the most rigorous system that we have for ruling out false theories and accumulating evidence and trying to find less inaccurate theories. And I trust that process, not the flawed humans behind it. Exactly, exactly. And we always point out that any given scientist will be getting things wrong at any given moment. That's not the process. The process is how does that interact with other scientists and how do they together figure out what's going on? And, you know, basically science is an aspirational method that actually works with very flawed individuals doing very you know, flawed bits and pieces of the story. But ideally, it generates something that allows us to fly airplanes and, 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 you know, and cure uh, diseases. And, and, and we obviously can do things with that process that no individual could do. And that you don't want to feel like you're in the position of having to trust the individuals too often. Um, you know, there's some great individuals, but any one of us, uh, I, I, when we teach the course, we point out that everything we're teaching in every one of these ideas in the course are things that we, the professors, get wrong. And that we still get them wrong, even after we teach them. And that, that the reason we're teaching them is so that we get a group of people around us who can help keep us honest and help us notice when we're getting one of them wrong. And that that's the process, really, not teaching any individual to be infallible. I think there's an interesting tension here in that I have often heard physicists stereotyped as the most arrogant of all scientists because they believe they can understand the universe. And I never could wrap my mind around that because any physicist, even early in training, knows how vast the unexplained universe is. So can you make sense of that paradox for me? What is it that causes some physicists to become arrogant and how do we maintain humility in that world? I, I mean, for me, I think it's a, it's a great example of one of the balances that is in this game of science. If enough humans are working together well enough with enough humbleness individually, but arrogance collectively, we can solve the problems. And individually, physicists then can, when they talk, sound arrogant, but ideally what you want them to be is really arrogant collectively, that you know, as a race of humans, we can actually do something together. But I think it's an important part of the story to have that can-do spirit well, I hate to think of that can-do spirit as arrogance. I, I would like to think of it as some degree of bold ambition and maybe confident humility where we believe we're capable of great things, but we also know how limited our current knowledge and tools are. I, I, obviously, that's what you really, what you really want to feel like at the end. And I, I'm probably just putting in a bit of an apology for the, uh, for the physicists, physicists who come across <laughs> as, as arrogant. Of course, of course, it could be because some of them actually are, but that's another whole problem. Yes. That is a whole nother conversation. One of the things I love most about science is how it can inform your daily life and decisions, not just the formal work of a professional scientist. So 
And you've written about this, right? Extensively. I've been working on it in part because I've been so enamored with how helpful it is for, for leaders and entrepreneurs to realize, you know what, a lot of my strategies are just hypotheses. Uh, my decisions are experiments, except I didn't have a control group. I was also really amused to see Jerry Seinfeld talk not too long ago about how he sees comedy as a scientific process where he's got a hypothesis about what's going to make people laugh. He runs the experiment and the audience response is, is evidence. And then he uses the data to revise his joke accordingly. I would love to hear how you apply scientific thinking to your life outside of, you know, the walls of science. I, I, I love the fact that, that children are taught very early the one person cuts the cake and the other person chooses which, which half they get. Um, it can be as simple as that as ways of avoiding knowing which of two alternatives are going to be the ones that you're going for. You can play that same game with yourself when you're you know, trying to decide which information to, to take in some decision that you're trying to make. And you could ask yourself, well, Suppose I was you know, already wanting the opposite of what I think I want, and I was trying to find evidence for that. What would I be looking for? You're choosing odds rationally. You're, you're weighing what the options are in a way that you would if you were trying to make a, a science decision. You are the third Nobel laureate we've had on the show. I brought Danny Kahneman and Esther Duflo, and I was curious about how winning the prize had affected their careers. So I've got to ask you the same question. Well, what's interesting is that in your own field, it really does not have a very major effect because they already know you pretty well. But what it does change much more is your ability to have conversations outside your immediate world because there people don't know you. I want to wrap us where we started, which is, I am desperate to know, is the universe going to last forever? Ah, what do you think? Okay, so the, the deep admission I have to make is that even though the whole point of the experiment that I started was to find out whether the universe will last forever and whether it's infinite or not. It turns out that once we discovered this new mystery of the acceleration of the universe, and now we're trying to figure out what, what's causing it, I had to put off knowing the answer because uh, depending on what it is that's actually causing the universe to accelerate, um, it could um, be something that will change with time. We're calling it dark energy right now as a placeholder just because we don't know what it is. And you know, so it, it doesn't tell us anything. But in the very, very earliest part of the universe, we believed that there was an, a rapid acceleration. And it stopped. The field that we think caused it to accelerate decayed away, and then the universe started to slow down. So for all we know, right now, whatever it is that's causing acceleration, since we haven't figured it out yet, it could decay away, and we could be back in the universe that's slowing down and coming to a halt someday in the future. So because right now my job is to go out and try to figure out why we're seeing the acceleration, um, I have to stay completely open in my mind to the possibility that it's one kind of dark energy or another kind. And so I can't take any favorites right now on whether or not it's going to come to an end or whether it's going to expand forever because I have to you know, allow for both possible or more possible alternatives. That I think that is the most encouraging answer I could possibly imagine to this question because you're saying despite all the horror stories that we've heard, it is possible the universe will always exist. Yes, and I will give you one, yes! extra, one extra piece of encouragement, which is that even in a universe that might come to an end, there's the interesting possibility that we get to have infinite number of thoughts before the universe comes to an end and that we are able to basically accelerate our thinking process and relative to the skills of the universe so that there's no end to our chance to explore and think. And so um, that for me would be the ultimate loophole that the universe could come to an end, but we still get to think infin infinitely and to experience infinitely. Wow. Well, my, my only reaction to that is 42. 
Thank you, Saul. This has been such a treat and so enlightening and surprisingly uplifting. I didn't know I would leave so excited about the future of the universe. Well, glad to. And it's a real pleasure. What we really want is not just a universe that can do its thing, but a human society, a, you know, a world of people who can uh, think together and actually solve these problems together. And so my, my optimism is even there. I think that you know, if we make it through these periods and we get just a little bit further in our understanding of how to think together, I, I, I think we will then be in great shape. Well, let's make that your next project. Thank you. I love Saul's notion that we should be humble about our individual abilities, but confident in our collective capability. Take it from a Nobel laureate. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You just need to make the room a little smarter. Rethinking is hosted by me, Adam Grant, and produced by Ted with Cosmic Standard. Our team includes Colin Helms, Eliza Smith, Jacob Winnick, Michelle Quint, Sammy Case, and Anna Phelan. This episode was produced and mixed by Cosmic Standard. Our fact checker is Paul Durbin. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. If you go backwards in time, the fun thing is that now you suck space out between objects and things get closer and closer and denser to each other and denser and denser until eventually everything is almost on top of each other and in like this thick, deep soup of, of, of particles. When we say Big Bang, we really just mean that very dense, hot, thick soup time. And it's just that probably it wouldn't have sold as well if people called it the big soup. <laughs> yeah, the bang has more, more oomph behind it. <laughs> Sounds like a more legitimate theory. <laughs>